As we turn our attention to John chapter 6, we immediately find ourselves encountering one of the most amazing and significant miracles in all of Jesus' ministry. The feeding of the 5,000, as it's known historically, was such an important moment that apart from only the resurrection, it's the only miracle of Jesus recorded in all four Gospels. Aside from the first 14 verses of John 6, you'll also find this event recorded in Matthew 14, Mark 6, and Luke chapter 9. Since we know that John, as we've discussed numerous occasions, John writing years after the other three gospel writers, and that John in many ways was providing a record with the understanding that most of the audience had already read the other three accounts, I think it's wise for us to approach John's narrative, John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, including, as we go through it, the additional details that are provided by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In many ways, kind of harmonizing the four narratives, I believe will aid us in our understanding of, of A, what's actually happening, and secondly, why it's so important. The approach, as we get to John 6, is that we're going to read through John's account, and as we're doing this, I'm going to provide the additional details given to us in the other three Gospels. So we're going to kind of harmonize the story. Using John 6 as our base, beginning with verse 1, we're told that after these things, now, now quickly pause, John really doesn't provide us with any specific context. And yet Mark tells us that the 12 disciples had just returned to Jesus following a season of ministry on their own. Matthew adds some context that Jesus has also just received word from a group of John the Baptizer's disciples that he had been tragically executed by Herod. Luke actually goes so far as to tell us that the rumor on the street following John's execution was that Herod was now seeking an audience with Jesus. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee. John then adds, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Because John is writing to a church much later than Matthew, Mark, or Luke, a church that at that juncture historically was comprised more of Gentiles than Jewish believers, John refers to the Sea of Galilee by its Roman name, something more identifiable by the, the Gentile populations, the Sea of Tiberias, same body of water, just two different names. This Gentile audience that John is, is writing to also explains, while in verse 4, John will clarify that the Passover was a feast of the Jews. Just a nugget, letting the audience have some context. Jo though John simply tells us here that Jesus went over the sea, Matthew tells us that Jesus departed by boat, specifically seeking a deserted place that he could be by himself, presumably to grieve the loss of his cousin John. Mark adds that the 12 disciples also traveled with Jesus so that they could enjoy a little rest and relaxation from their ministry. And finally, Luke informs us that the ultimate destination for this boat trip was a deserted place located near the Galilean town of Bethsaida. Verse 2, John says, Then a great multitude followed Jesus, because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. While the other gospel narratives confirm John's account that a great multitude followed Jesus, 
as he's embarking on this boat journey, they're embarking on a trek around the sea, seeing where Jesus would land. Mark tells us, though, that a crowd had already amassed at this deserted location, even before Jesus' boat reaches the shore. Mark adds that the multitude were like sheep not having a shepherd. Interesting observation. Matthew records that upon Jesus' arrival to this deserted place, seeing the crowds, he was so moved with compassion, the sheep without a shepherd, that he ends up spending the entire day healing the sick multitudes. That's what Matthew tells us happened. Mark says that in addition to healing, that Jesus was also, as he's healing, teaching the people. And then Luke gives us even more details, saying that the subject of Jesus' teaching on that particular day was the kingdom of God. All of this plays into the story. Verse 3, John says that Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near, and then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming towards him, he said to Philip, now pause, again, John is kind of short, vague, on specifics. However, all three of the other gospel writers let us know that by the time Jesus sat down with the disciples, it was already evening. One author says that the day was far spent. It's likely, as Jesus joins the disciples, he continues to see more and more people coming out to be ministered by him. It's with this in mind that the disciples decided it's time to address the obvious issue. Since this place along the shore was deserted and the hour was now late, the disciples advised that Jesus send people away. Send them away, Jesus, so that they can go into the surrounding villages to buy food. In response to their suggestion, Jesus does something interesting. He instead commands them to provide food for the multitudes themselves. No need to send them away, provide them something to eat. Now, it would, it would seem that interrupting an unrecorded discussion among the disciples, verse 5, Jesus said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread, Philip, that these may eat? But, but this he said to test him, for Jesus himself knew what Philip would do. And then Philip answered Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that everyone may have a little. According to Luke, because Philip was from the town of Bethsaida, this location, it's likely that he ends up speaking on behalf of the other disciples. Mark also adds that in response to these men, Jesus ends up asking the disciples how many loaves of bread they presently had with them. So there's some dialogue. You feed them. The disciples powwow. Philip, where, where can we buy some bread? Well, we've got 200 denarii. That's really not enough. And so Jesus then says, well, what do you have? What do you have with you? Well, one of the disciples, verse 8, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, 
make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down and number about 5,000. Well, Matthew confirms the number of men to be around 5,000. This is a detail that, that all of the, the writers uh, substantiate. Matthew, though, is the only gospel writer that mentions the number didn't include all of the women, presumably wives, and children who were also present. It's likely, many scholars believe, that the size of this crowd could have been anywhere from twenty to 30,000. That when we're told there were 5,000 men, it was that the men were representing their families. 5,000 families were present. Matthew and Luke's narrative, they, they also add that in addition to preparing this miracle by having them sit on the green grass, Jesus directs the disciples specifically to have them sit on the grass, divided out into groupings of hundreds and fifties. Verse 11, and Jesus took the loaves. The, the other three add that, that as he was doing this, he was looking to heaven as he blessed the loaves and the fish. John then says, and when he had given thanks, he distributed the loaves and fish to the disciples. Matthew adds that the, the, the process of distribution also included Jesus breaking the loaves and fish into pieces. And then Jesus gave them to the disciples for the disciples to then give them to those sitting down, and likewise the fish, John says, as much as they wanted. So they were filled. So when they were filled, Jesus said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the barley loaves, the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. In order to unpack the deeper lessons that Jesus is intending to communicate through this unique miracle, I want to take just a few more minutes and really dive into the nuances of the story itself. With all four gospel narratives harmonized, which I think yields a more complete picture of what all is taking place, first consider the mental the emotional, probably the spiritual conditions of both the disciples, these 12 men, as well as Jesus. First, the disciples. These men were on cloud nine. There's no question, they were riding high. For the last couple of weeks, as Jesus is continuing a teaching circuit, going from town to town to town around the Sea of Galilee, these 12 disciples were sent out, groups of two, to minister. They'd been engaged in ministry on their own. The training wheels had been taken off. Let, let me read you how Luke establishes uh, this narrative in chapter 9. He says that Jesus called the 12 disciples together and gave them power, gave them authority over all demons and to cure disease. And then Jesus sent them to preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. So they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Well, upon their return, Mark 6 records that these apostles gathered to Jesus. So they come back and we're told that they told Jesus all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Like, What an amazing time for these 12 guys. 
For the first time since making the decision to forsake all and follow Jesus, these men had seen the power of God manifest not just through Jesus, but now through themselves. Like they had witnessed God's miraculous power through their own hands, through their feet, through their mouthpieces, through their lives. They were in the center of the action. As his disciples, these men had gotten a taste of what it was like to be Jesus in a lost world. See, Jesus had equipped them. He had equipped them and commissioned them for this task. These men had traveled over these weeks, healing people of sickness and disease, and then using that opportunity, just like Jesus, to preach specifically the message of the kingdom of God. You can imagine that under the circumstance, as they come back to Jesus, these men are absolutely exuberant, but they're probably spiritually and physically spent. As such, Mark tells us that Jesus said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and let's rest for a while. For there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. The context for why they got in the boat in the first place. No doubt, that while the ministry experience had been radical, these 12 men were utterly exhausted. I can imagine there was great relief when Jesus, after they've told their stories and shared their testimonies, when Jesus made the suggestion they board a boat, cross the Sea of Galilee, and take some time to withdraw and to rest, knowing how challenging it would be to escape the craziness of ministry and the constant needs of the masses, it made sense to these men that the destination be a deserted place, away from the mob. You know, for Jesus, you can also imagine receiving news of John the baptizer's death would have also warranted a little reprieve as well. Would have just been natural. Jesus loved John. No question. Aside from the fact that their ministries were uniquely intertwined, don't forget, Jesus and John, they were cousins. They were family. Sure, in Jesus' omniscience, in in his full knowledge, he knew what had happened to John before he had even received the news, before he had even been informed. And yet, as a human being, Jesus was still subject to the same natural emotions of grief and loss that we experience. Remember when Jesus gets word that Lazarus, his best friend, was was dying, and, and, and then he gets word as he goes to visit four days later that Lazarus had died, knowing that he was about to call Lazarus forth, right? We're told that Jesus still stood there, and what did he do? He wept. The natural human emotions that Jesus would experience, getting the news, knowing that John had been beheaded. I'm sure it struck him. I'm sure getting away for Jesus sounded great. These men, and I love to try to get into the story. I think it gives it some humanity. These men board the boat that day, totally stoked. Play the scene out. Peter. Peter packs his boogie board has already applied to his nose a terrible shade of lime green banana boat. His brother Andrew has loaded up the 10 by 10 pop-up. He's got the Yeti. 
Nathaniel comes back from the storage locker with the beach chairs and the bocce ball. Knowing the local scene, you know, because he's from Bethsaida, I, I see Philip busy on Airbnb looking for the right condo with beachfront access. Levi, kind of the nerd of the group, has packed his bag with some good reading material. All the while, there's Judas, who's, who's the treasurer, crunching numbers, trying to figure out how this is going to fit within the budget. Imagine the look on their faces. I mean, they're pumped up for vacation, man. When as they approach their destination, they realize vacation has just been hijacked. These men are tired. They're longing for some R&R. They want a break. I'm sure there was a collective, collective gasp, palpable disappointment in that boat when they saw the crowds already swarming what was supposed to be a deserted and quiet place. Now, one of the aspects that we cannot overlook is the reality that while this reaction of the disciples would have been absolutely understandable, all things considered, don't forget, don't miss it, Jesus, you think Jesus was surprised by what he found? No, not at all. Jesus was not surprised in the slightest that the multitudes had gathered. Like, it wasn't as though that as they're getting closer, Jesus is also kind of caught off guard. Nor can we even say that Jesus would have been disappointed by this development. In actuality, the case can be made that Jesus probably, and specifically, led his disciples into this very situation in order to teach them something of vital importance. Something that was so significant that John, even John, finds it necessary to repeat, though it had already been recorded three times already. John does not repeat much, but this miracle demanded it. Now, in order to understand what the lessons were, you kind of need to discuss what happens when they arrive at the shore. We're told that Jesus was so moved with compassion over what he saw that he proceeds to spend the entire day doing two things. Jesus spends the whole day healing the sick of their diseases. And secondly, he spends the whole day teaching the people, what? The kingdom of God. Now, now what strikes me as absolutely strange, especially when you keep the context for this story in mind, is what's oddly missing. You see what's missing? Missing from any of the narratives. They get to the shore. They're met with this mass of people. Jesus is moved with compassion. Jesus spends the day healing. Jesus spends the day teaching about the kingdom of God. Who is not doing anything? These 12 disciples. There's no mention of the 12 doing anything. In actuality, one of the details that only John includes in his gospel, we find in verse 3. In verse 3, we're told that Jesus went up on the mountain. That word just means a higher place. And there he sat with his disciples. The word we have sat with, actually implies that Jesus, when the day of ministry was finished, decided to join the disciples in the place they were already sitting. 
Like, don't miss that. Again, taking into account all four gospel narratives, what can we conclude happened that day? Well, upon arriving at this deserted place, Jesus spends the entire day ministering while his 12 disciples do what? Separate themselves, hike a hill, sit down, and do nothing. Their beach vacation had been wrecked, and these 12 men are throwing a pity party while Jesus is ministering. <laughs> Aside from the terrible optics of that, right? What makes this development even more bizarre is that this entire scene directly dovetails off of what? A season of ministry in which these disciples had been empowered and commissioned by Jesus to do what? What two things? The exact two things we see Jesus doing here on the shore. Healing people and teaching the kingdom of God. It's not an accident. Of all of the times that these 12 men should have been in the fray alongside of Jesus, should have been this moment. Healing the sick, teaching about the kingdom, these were the two things of all things they were equipped and empowered to do. And yet, while Jesus is busy ministering, you got Peter and Andrew and Philip, John, the rest of the A-team, sitting on a hill, sulking that their vacation had been ruined. Now, get back to the story. Jesus spends the day healing and teaching. The sun's now setting when he climbs the hill to take a seat with this crew of disappointed disciples. Then, in response to the fact a great multitude, as John says, was still coming towards him, the twelve advised Jesus to send them away into the surrounding towns to buy food for themselves. I love Jesus' immediate response to their counsel. Matthew 14, verse 16, but Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, with all things considered, what is Jesus actually saying to them? Think about it. It's as though Jesus is like, you guys have been sitting around all day doing nothing. So instead of sending them away, why don't you get off your rears, step up to the plate and do something? Feed them. It's at this point I can see this crew. As I, I, just, I just see it unfolding, the scene. The crew, they, they huddle together. And they, they discuss, like, how in the world are we going to feed such a crowd? How are we going to do this? And then as they're discussing it, Jesus kind of cuts into the conversation. He singles Philip out, and he asks him, Philip, where's the best place to buy bread in Bethsaida? You know, it's your hometown. You know the local. Where can, where can we buy bread? Now, John records that Jesus' question, really, he wasn't concerned about an answer. He did this to test Philip and specifically the others. Now, what's interesting is that by this point in their discussion, the disciples have already figured something out. This, this unrecorded conversation, they've reached a few conclusions. Like they've figured that they had roughly 200 denarii in the reserve fund, the ministry fund. They could spend 200 denarii to purchase bread. Now, a denarii 
historically, we're not sure exactly how much it was. Most just assume that it was about a day's wage. So the disciples reason that they have about seven months' salary on hand. Now, in response to Jesus' question, where do we get bread, and their calculations about how much money they have, Philip steps forward to break the bad news to Jesus. Verse 7, look at it again. Philip answered Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread, which means they've already run the calculations. <laughs> it's not sufficient, Jesus, that everyone may have just a little. You see, Philip's argument here to Jesus is that their resources were simply insufficient to do what Jesus was asking of them. Like, it's as though Philip's like, Jesus, like, you want us to feed this incredible mass of people. We get it. Yeah, we've been sulking. We've been doing nothing. We, get, we, we understand. As a matter of fact, like, we took your suggestion seriously. We, we've run the numbers. We've looked over the books. We got about 200 denarii in the account. But by our estimations, Jesus, even if we spend everything we had, like, we're only going to be able to buy enough bread for, like, everyone to have, like, a cracker, yet alone, like, a meal. Once again, I love Jesus' response. In Mark 6, verse 38, we're told that he said to them, okay, well, how many loaves do you have? And they kind of look around. So Jesus then says, go and see. And when they found out, Mark says, they replied, well, we have five loaves and two fish. Now keep in mind that Mark's account is actually that of Peter's recollection which makes the added detail of John really funny to me. Like In verses 8 and 9, John actually gives the reader a brand new insight into what was actually happening, not included in Mark or any of the other Gospels. He writes that one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, well, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? Now, as Peter recalls the story, you notice what he leaves out? Like he fails to mention where he and his brother, Andrew, got the five loaves and two fish. They just say, oh yeah, we got five loaves and two fish. And yet, writing years after the fact, the apostle John wants everyone to know where they got the five loaves and two fish that Andrew and Peter stole them from a kid. Yeah, we got five loaves and two fish because, yeah, we just stole that kid's lunch. That's where they got it. Blows my mind. What makes the scene fascinating, really, is that we have in this story two needs being presented. So if you want to understand the lessons, know that there's two needs. The first need was the initial multitude of sick that they encounter on the shore, right? It's the first need, pressing need. A need, keep in mind, that these 12 men were actually equipped to handle, to minister to. And yet, because they were tired, they decide to sit on the sidelines and do nothing. But, but then you have a second need, a, a very practical need, right? 
You have 5,000 people, more in the range of 20 to 30K, who are hungry and need to be fed. So what does Jesus do? He commands these disciples to do something about it, knowing full well that they were absolutely ill-equipped to do it. They had no ability to feed these people. Their resources were not sufficient. And the truth is that these men couldn't muster a thing. They were unable. You have one need, they were equipped to handle. You have another need, they weren't equipped to handle. Unable. Jesus asked them what they had. But the reality is they hadn't even packed food for themselves, and they got to take five loaves and two fish. And, and that word fish, it's more of sardines. And barley loaves was, was a poor man's bread. They take this from a kid. Like, it was an embarrassment, their response here. Like, they had to admit to Jesus, hey, well, what do you have? Eh, we really don't have anything. And yet, and yet, look at what Jesus does. In response to Andrew's statement, but what are they among so many? Matthew records that Jesus commands the disciples to bring the loaves and fish to him. Then we're told he took them, looking up to heaven, he blessed them, or as John writes, he gave thanks, said grace. And then Jesus breaks the loaves and the fish, distributes them to the disciples, who then distribute them to the multitudes. And in the end, not only did everyone have as much as they wanted, but we're told there were 12 baskets left over for the disciples. Every gospel writer includes that detail. It would appear from the construct of the narrative that the miracle of multiplying the bread and fish took place not as the disciples were distributing them, but took place as Jesus was breaking them into pieces. It's the context. Like in a profound sense, the miracle of feeding the 5,000 occurred literally in the hands of the creator. Now again, <laughs> that's not that crazy. If you already believe that Jesus created all things out of nothing, like think about it. If Jesus has the power to speak something into existence from nothing, it's really not crazy to believe that he can multiply what already exists. Now that we're clear what actually took place in this story, and I hope you have the, the, the macro picture and the nuance, that you, that you get it. With the time that we have remaining, I want to now dig into the larger lessons that Jesus is communicating to these disciples. And I think if you're a note taker, there are six lessons. Now don't freak out. It's not going to take us long to get through them. But once again, of all of the miracles recorded in the Gospels, these are the context. The overarching lessons behind this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, were of such importance to the Gospel authors. And by extension, the Holy Spirit, that they wanted this story repeated four times so we wouldn't miss the lessons. If there had been six gospel writers, all six of them would have included this story because of its significance. Lesson number one, the first lesson of the feeding of the 5,000, is that even the ministry we're equipped for still demands a complete reliance on God's strength to be effective. Let me repeat that. 
Even the ministry we're equipped for still demands a complete reliance on God's strength to be effective. I'm struck by the fact that these 12 men failed, utterly failed, in the one area of ministry they were equipped to do. Like while they had just come off of a season of ministry where they had healed the sick and taught the people about the kingdom of God, when now given a fresh opportunity to use this equipping, they bailed and they sat on the sidelines. Like in the one area they were able, they proved worthless. And why is this? It seems, though equipped for this type of service, there was one aspect of the ministry these 12 men did not understand. And that is the fact that God's equipping, powered by human strength, will always prove ineffective. Why were these 12 men on the ministry sidelines as opposed to being in the fray, serving alongside of Jesus? Even though they were able and gifted for the task, why were they sitting up on this hill? Well, they were tired. They had just been doing a lot of ministry, man. They were tired, burned up, tapped out, ready for a vacation. Why? Well, I think the reason is that in the ministry, while equipped by God, they had been relying on their own strength, ability, and power instead of the Lord's. Like, this is the first lesson these men never forgot, nor should we. Friend, God's equipping for the ministry also demands his, his empowering if it's to be effective. Like for example, you might be naturally gifted by God in a particular area of service. But if you only rely on that natural gifting and don't fully depend on the power of the Holy Spirit, not only will you fail to be effective, but in the end you'll grow weary, depleted, and ultimately quit. You might have the greatest singing pipes in the world, but if you only rely on that gifting instead of the Spirit, you're going to tap out. In their book, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, co-authors Jamin Goggin and Kyle Strubble unpack this idea. I just want to read what they write. Ministry is a call to embrace our weakness, not to actualize our abilities. It is in the areas of our lives where we are most able, the places we think we are strong, where we are most often called into weakness. It is in our strengths where we think we can avoid abiding in Christ, where we sow to the flesh rather than abide by the Spirit. It is in our strengths where we trust our own personal personal savvy rather than the calling of God. They later write, operating, ministry operating, from our strengths, is actually practicing atheism. It's a powerful thought. Lesson number two. When God gives a directive, it requires we factor in his involvement. I'll repeat it. 
you're a note taker. When God gives a directive, it requires we factor in his involvement. Jesus gives these men a very clear and undeniable mission, right? Feed the multitude. Then the ministry calling wasn't in question. The word of Jesus indiscernible. Jesus spoke and directed his disciples to do something very specific. Everyone's on the same page. There's zero confusion. God spoke to us. Now what hits me is how the disciples approached the task they had been given by God. And what hits me about this is because we tend in the church to use the exact same methodology. Jesus directs his disciples to feed the multitude. And what do they immediately do? What we would do. They pull up quick books in order to see how much money they had on hand. Okay, 200 denarii. Then they begin to calculate how much bread that budget would allow them to purchase. And once that was determined, they, they start to strategize and research how they might be able to make all this work. Well, I mean, everyone could have a bite, but not be fed. Finally, though, they reached the conclusion, what? You know, our research, our budget, our funds, well, they were woefully insufficient to do what Jesus has just told them to do. Like, they actually had the gall to come back to Jesus and say what he's calling them to, to do was impossible. Jesus gives them a ministry directive to feed the multitude. And these men evaluated their ability to accomplish the task using their resources. And you know, here's the truth. Their conclusions were absolutely accurate. They, their resources were insufficient. And yet here's the problem. They had failed to process all of the data. They didn't take into account, well, Jesus' involvement. Like, this is why Jesus ultimately asked them, well, what do you have? And I think in his mind, he's kind of laughing at them. Sadly, to avoid embarrassment, Andrew, as we've talked about, steals a few loaves and, and some bread, some sardines, presents them to Jesus. Even Andrew realizes like, what are these among so many? We ain't got nothing, Jesus. Now, never forget this. God will always push you beyond your resources and his calling so that you'll discover his. Like, there's no question in this moment that when Jesus took the loaves and the fish and fed the 5,000, that moment never left these men because it was a lesson seared into their hearts and minds forever. Friend, when Jesus asks you to do something or gives you a vision for ministry, he's not asking you to figure out a way to get the job done. Instead, he's inviting you to be involved in a work he's about to accomplish if you're willing to give to him your meager resources which ties into lesson three. True ministry centers upon the distribution and stewarding of God's work, not man's. Like, there is no doubting the ministry roles on that particular day, right? Jesus performed a miraculous work of providing enough bread and fish to feed the crowd. And the disciples, what, were, what was their role? They acted as a conduit by which the crowds received the fruit of Jesus' labor. Jesus did a work. Their job was to distribute it. 
Now, don't miss that because so many overlook it. The disciples' job in this amazing ministry was distribution, not manufacturing. Jesus produced a work. He then entrusted to his disciples to distribute to the people. Beyond this, Jesus also charges them with the task of gathering up the fragments that remain so nothing was lost, stewardship. Their role in the ministry is ours. Distribution and stewarding of the work of Jesus. A work he gives to us to give to others. The implications of this, if I can just speak very candidly, kind of hit me hard as a pastor. Especially a pastor of a small church. Like so often in the ministry that Jesus invites us to participate in, we feel a burden. Oh, it's a terrible burden. But a true one. To make something happen. Like especially when we feel as though nothing is. Or it's, it's not happening fast enough. Like as a pastor, I can falsely believe the lie that it's my job to make this thing called Calvary 316 work. That the success of this ministry is incumbent on me and my performance. And that is so tiring. This is, a, this is another reality. The book, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, has challenged me personally. I just want to read a section. The underlying assumption of the way we tend to do our church services is that we're putting on a performance. And if we're putting on a performance, then you want people who are stellar. At least that's what you look for. This is one of the things that crushes pastors. The idea that every single Sunday they have to put on a performance. God's provision for us and for his work through us is adequate. We do not have to make it happen. We must stop shouldering the burdens of outcomes because these are safely in his hands. As it pertains to this fundamental question, what is ministry? Christian philosopher Dallas Willard he answers, ministry is bringing the life of God, as it would be understood in the terms of Jesus and his kingdom, into the lives of others. Don't, don't miss what he says. You, your role in ministry, simple. You are a carrier of the power of God, the kingdom of God, and the grace of God, so that you watch that work with people and just try not to get in the way. You bring the power of God, the truth of God, and the presence of Jesus into the lives of other people, and you watch it work. Friend, ministry is not about manufacturing a work. It's distributing his work. The grace I give to others is not a grace that originates here. It's a grace I've been, I've been given, that I've received, and then I distribute it. I don't have a love of myself. And when I do, it's woefully inadequate, but I get a love from God that I didn't want to turn and share with my neighbors or my wife or my kids. It's a work of Jesus given to me to then flow through me. Lesson number four. There is no greater demonstration of Jesus' power than when he uses our insufficient resources to accomplish an improbable work. Like imagine... The reaction of the disciples is Jesus began to multiply the bread and the fish. Like, right? 
Now, now, now though it's, it's hard to know if, if the crowd really grasped what was happening or, or when it was happening. The same cannot be said for the disciples, right? Because they were directly included in the work Jesus was doing. These men had a front row seat for the miracle, right? They saw it with their eyes. Again, I think this is one of the reasons that, the, that this story stuck with them. Christian, I know that what I'm about to say is a very difficult concept to learn, and I will admit it's not one that I've exactly grasped. But it's true nonetheless. There is no better mechanism for your faith in Jesus to increase than when you witness Jesus work through your weakness, not your strength. You see, it's often our, va- our very ableness or abilities, or giftings, or prowess, or intellect, or strength that leads us into a false sense that somehow God's work depends on my involvement. Because I'm that awesome. But note, the same cannot be said when we allow God to work in the presence of our inabilities, shortcomings, inadequacies, frailties, or weakness. God's strength manifests in our weakness. Here's the inescapable truth concerning ministry. If God's work cannot continue without your involvement, is it really God's work? The the disciples knew that they were a part of a true work of God. Why? Because if Jesus wasn't there, no one was eating a thing. Apart from Jesus, this wasn't happening. Lesson number five. Though a work of Jesus will include your involvement, it will always result in his exaltation. Like, notice what resulted from a true work of Christ. Did the disciples get any of the credit? <laughs> Not at all. John 6, 14, we're told that those men, when they seen the sign that Jesus did, they said, truly the prophet who's come into the world, this is him. Jesus worked, the disciples were involved, but Jesus got the glory. Like, I really do believe that the easiest way to evaluate whether a ministry is a work of God or a work of man is to take a step back and see who's being exalted. Like, in this story, no one would have even dreamed praising the disciples. Nor would they, to be fair, would have ever dared receive praise because there was no question to anyone present that it was Jesus that did the work and did something amazing, did something worthy of praise. Friend, really? That's the type of church I want to be involved in. Lesson number six. The greatest ministry we have on earth is feeding hungry people the bread of life. In a few verses, John will include an amazing sermon given by Jesus concerning the topic of the bread of life. And Jesus does this specifically mentioning doing so with the context of this miracle. And in actuality, John is the only gospel author that does this, that includes this narrative, which is likely the primary reason he records the feeding of the 5,000 to then segue to a lesson about the bread of life. Now, for the sake of time, you'll have to come back for that. We'll get to it in the weeks to come. In closing, very quickly, just because I saw some of you writing these, these lessons down, I'll just repeat them. I think that they really should be pillars for our ministry, honestly. One, 
even the ministry we're equipped for still demands a complete reliance on God's strength to be effective. Two, when God gives a directive, it requires we factor in his involvement. Three, true ministry centers upon a distribution and stewarding of God's work. Four, there is no greater demonstration of Jesus' power than when he uses our insufficient resources to, to accomplish an improbable work. Five, though a work of Jesus will include your involvement, it will always result in his exaltation. And then finally, the greatest ministry we have on this earth is feeding hungry men the bread of life. And so, Father, Lord, with all these things...